Hey everybody, welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I'm gonna be your one and only host for today's episode. And today's episode is gonna talk a lot about appetite. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you're probably pretty familiar with a lot of fitness-related uh, content and research and things like that. Uh, appetite is something that comes up in a variety of different contexts in fitness. So if you are cutting, if you're doing a weight loss phase, a lot of times we talk about strategies to manage hunger. If you are bulking up or trying to gain weight, a lot of times we talk about strategies for navigating or circumventing a suppressed appetite. So no matter what your fitness goal is, there are a lot of applications where appetite becomes a very pertinent consideration. So in today's episode, I want to talk about some of the key strategies that I've personally utilized both for myself and for my clients when it comes to navigating appetite management. Now, it's still January as I'm recording this, and around this time of year, a lot of people have goals pertaining to weight loss or fat loss or body recomposition. So for that reason, in this episode, I'm going to talk a lot about appetite, but specifically as it pertains to managing hunger when we're on a low-calorie diet or when we're trying to maintain a relatively low body fat level. So hunger will be the primary focus of this episode, strategies to manage and navigate hunger. But I'm also going to briefly address bulking at the end of this episode as well. So I'm going to talk about strategies that help you navigate a bulking phase or a weight gain phase when your appetite is really suppressed. Um, so we're going to cover both of those. But before I get into it, I want to give a brief update about this totally illegal strike that's going on by the Stronger by Science podcast co-host Union. So if you've been watching the last few weeks, you know that they've been making a ton of outrageous demands. Uh, most recently, they asked for me to purchase them a private jet and to establish a fund that would cover the operating expenses for that jet. Uh, I've made some pretty big steps toward both of those particular requests, uh, moved a lot of money around to make a lot of things happen. Uh, very, very close to finalizing some of the details there, but now the union has put another outlandish request on my desk. Uh, I think they were watching a documentary or something, maybe watched too many uh, episodes of the local news. Apparently, they got wind of uh, you know some new carbon taxes that might be coming in the future, uh, some other legislative regulations that are trying to curb private aviation. Uh, so at this point, the union is requesting that I secure preemptive exemptions to make sure that they're not going to be impacted by any future carbon taxes or any future regulations that are aimed at limiting private aviation. Uh, now, if you've been listening to the show for years now, our podcast does have a pretty long history of influencing uh, state and federal policy. We've made a lot of things happen in the past couple of years. So I'm working on this, but it is probably going to be a slow process. Um, you know, I, I do have some contacts to lean on, but it'll take some time. And it's really hard to get exemptions for rules that don't exist yet. Uh, it's much easier to get exemptions for rules that are already on the books. So uh, I will provide updates as they come in. But for now, I'm doing my absolute best. And I just want to reiterate that this strike is totally illegal and totally immoral. Uh, now, before I get into the appetite stuff here, uh, just a couple reminders. If you like the show, there are many ways you could support it. Um, you could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you access the show. You could join our newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter. You could check out our virtual one-on-one -on -one coaching program at strongerbyscience.com coaching. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. 
The code is SBSPOD. It gets you 5% off your order. You could check out the Mass Research Review, and you could also check out MacroFactor, uh, which is the excellent diet app that Greg and I co-developed along with a very talented uh, team of colleagues. So MacroFactor is the diet app. You can find it on the app stores, uh, and there is a free trial, so you can take it for a spin and see if you like it. All right, so now I'm going to dive right in. We're going to be talking here about practical strategies for managing hunger. So uh, to set the context, imagine that you are in a weight loss phase, you're on a calorie-restricted diet, or you're trying to maintain weight loss after successfully losing a bunch of weight. So you're still on a calorie-restricted diet, uh, and usually in these circumstances, hunger is going to be a noteworthy challenge uh, that, that needs to be addressed um, in some way. Um, so I'm going to talk about a number of uh, different strategies, very practical strategies for managing hunger. And the first one is an interesting one because it kind of involves doing nothing at all, but in a very productive way. So the first one is something that you've heard about. If you listened to a previous episode where I talked about mindful eating, I talked about some of the mechanisms by which mindful eating could potentially make a weight loss diet a little bit easier or a little bit more tolerable. One of those mechanisms is that if you incorporate mindful eating, it's very likely that you will be adopting what we call an acceptance-based approach to weight management. Um, so I want to talk about this acceptance-based approach uh, specifically as it pertains to hunger. And I'm going to link a, a research paper in the show notes if you'd like some more information. Uh, but if we apply this to hunger, what that means is when hunger arises, we are not trying to uh, reject the fact that it's there. Uh, we're not trying to uh, convince ourselves that it doesn't exist. We're not trying to suppress it. We're not trying to fix it. Uh, even when hunger isn't yet present, we're not trying to avoid it at all costs. You know, a lot of people, when they get into dieting and they get on a calorie-restricted diet, they try really hard to avoid hunger uh, to the extent that it's possible. You know, they really fret over the possibility that hunger may arise. Uh, and when it does arise, they try to reject it, suppress it, or fix it in some way. Um, and what, what we want to do if we adopt an acceptance-based strategy is really reframe the way that we experience hunger. Uh, so when I talk about this, because there is such a clear parallel with mindful eating, I am going to lean on a bit of a Buddhist analogy for this. So if you have absolutely no patience for a Buddhist analogy that's all about perspective, if you're here for the really nitty-gritty academic science, you can skip ahead a little bit. But I do think this is a helpful perspective to consider when it comes to an acceptance-based approach to hunger management or weight management more generally. So the Buddhist analogy is originally about how to deal with strong emotions or, or very strong uh, sensations that we experience. And in the analogy, you imagine that you're sitting on the bank of a river and there are leaves that are just kind of floating by on the surface of the river. And in this analogy or in this metaphor, each of these leaves that's floating by on the surface of the river is a thought, a feeling, an emotion, or a sensation. And, and we can imagine hunger is one of those leaves that, that is floating by. Uh, now, like I said, these leaves are, they represent our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our sensations. Most importantly, these leaves are not part of us. They are external to us and they are simply passing by. They are temporary and they are external. So what that means is, if you want, as you're sitting on the bank of this river, you can pick one up 
and engage with it if you like. Or you can let it pass by without engaging with it at a high level. Um, and what that means is, you know, letting it pass by is very different from trying to destroy it or reject it or suppress it or pretend it doesn't exist. Letting something pass by is very different from doing any of those things. Uh, so when we use this analogy, this is not uh, letting a leaf pass by in this metaphor is not an act of asserting mental control. We are not saying I'm going to wrestle with this thing and overcome it and overpower it and suppress it. That's absolutely not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is not asserting mental control. What we're talking about is an action of letting go. You know, to let something float by is a passive action. To pick it up and interact with it or try to change it, that is a, a decision to, to engage with it in that way. Now, if we feel like we have no choice, you know, if we feel like we are unable to avoid picking up this metaphorical leaf and interacting with it, what that probably means, whether we're talking about a thought, an emotion, a sensation, is that we need to do a little bit of work to try to uh, recenter ourselves and calm our mind a little bit and get back into the driver's seat of our mind, you know, and, and the way that our mind is interacting with the thoughts and the emotions and the, and the sensations that are passing by. And so this is where, where mindfulness practices come into play. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I do sitting meditation on a regular basis, and, and sometimes people find the concept to be very foreign and very difficult to understand. Because it, a lot of times people think, well, what does it mean to sit there and have literally no thoughts? And I, I think of sitting meditation very differently. I, I think of it as the practice of pulling myself out of this raging river where I'm getting tossed around by the water and interacting with these leaves uh, without any intentional uh, decision to do so. I'm trying to pull myself out of this river and sit on the bank and watch the river with calmness and with solidity. Uh, so it's the act of not getting tossed around and chasing every thought and emotion and feeling like we have to either uh, work on it or change it or suppress it. It's the act of removing yourself from that turbulent uh, water of the river, sitting on the bank and understanding that you're able to remove yourself, uh, create some distance from these thoughts and feelings and perceptions and sensations, and you can make the choice to interact with them or to reframe them as you see fit. So what that means is, when we see hunger arising, we don't want to pretend it's not there. You know, we want to say, hey, hunger, I see you. I, I know that you're there and I'm here with you. Uh, I'm not trying to reject the idea that you exist. I'm not trying to force you to be something else. Again, you being the hunger in this scenario. Uh, but you, hunger, are separate from me. You, you are not me. You are separate from my emotional state, my worries, my actions. And, and because you're separate from those things, you are not able to control them. You know, hunger is not able to just show up and completely change my emotional state, uh, force me to worry and stress over it, uh, change my actions in terms of my dietary choices. This hunger is separate from me and this hunger is not permanent. And so what that means is just like the leaf on the river, it will pass eventually. I don't need to fix anything. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to suppress anything. What I really need to do is recenter myself, pull myself out of that raging river, sit on the bank and watch those leaves passing by and remind myself that I have the autonomy 
to choose which of these leaves I'm going to interact with. So when hunger is arising, we think of it as a leaf that's passing by. If we want to pick it up and explore it and interact with it, that's something we can do, but we have the choice to let it pass by if we see fit. Uh, so it's not just about hunger. When we talk about acceptance-based approaches to weight management, this could apply to something like food cravings as well. Um, but I, I know that I talked briefly about this concept in the episode about mindful eating, and I wanted to take a moment to elaborate on it a little bit more uh, because I think it's uh, the type of concept that can be very difficult to understand without examples, without metaphors, without analogies. But once you start to get a sense of what we're talking about here, of entering a dieting phase, a weight loss phase, and accepting on the front end, I know that I'm going to be interacting with hunger at some point, with food cravings at some point. These things are going to arise and they're going to pass. And then they're going to arise again and they're going to pass again. And what we want to do is accept that on the front end. We want to accept the fact that these challenges are going to be part of the process and there's nothing wrong with that. We do not need to craft a perfect plan that is going to allow us to never run into hunger or to never experience a craving. What we need to do is accept that those will be part of the, the, the process, they will be part of the journey, but we need to um, make sure that we're taking care of our, our mental perspective of how we interact with those things as they arise. If we can uh, interact with them in a, in a way that embraces acceptance, what we'll find is a lot, of very, uh, a, very, a lot of very productive and proactive perspectives when it comes to hunger and cravings. If we don't adequately prepare ourselves for that and we panic when these things arise and we view it as a bad thing, then when hunger arises, when cravings arise, we might find ourselves in a position where it really takes over our mental state. We start to panic about it. We worry about it. We become miserable. We suffer from it. Uh, because we are unable to accept it. And sometimes it can even dictate the way we approach our diet. We may deviate from our diet because we believe that this hunger or this craving truly has taken control. And our only option then is to appease it by deviating from the diet and ultimately uh, accommodating whatever this uh, transient experience is dictating that we do. So acceptance-based approaches, I know that they... It really seems way outside the box when it comes to typical uh, fitness industry dieting advice. The only reason I bring it up and belabor the point and dive deep into these metaphors and analogies is because I genuinely do believe that this is probably the most important strategy for managing hunger uh, when we are dieting or when we are trying to restrict calories. And the reason I, I kind of pause there and get caught up in my language is because it, it is a bit of an oxymoron. This particular strategy is an approach to managing hunger in which we liberate ourselves from the obligation of managing hunger. So it, I know it, it kind of sounds um, a bit paradoxical there or a bit oxymoronic, but in some ways, the best way to manage hunger is to let yourself remember that you actually don't really have to manage it all that much. You can let it pass by and reframe it in a way that's constructive to you. And again, I just want to reiterate to reframe it in a constructive way is not to reject the fact that it exists or to reject the fact that it is unpleasant when it arises. Hunger is not a pleasant sensation. So I'm not saying that uh, the suffering induced from hunger is all in your head and you should simply opt out of it. 
But what I am saying is there's probably a way to reframe your perspective toward hunger that will remove a lot of the power that hunger can have over people when they're dieting. So I really would encourage people to dig into this concept very deeply and to embrace it with an open mind uh, because the research would indicate it's a very effective uh, perspective to bring to dieting. Um, and it has been very, very effective for me as well. Uh, number two, the, the second strategy here, we're going to get back into some more conventional uh, fitness and diet related advice here. Uh, and number two is eat slow and savor. Uh, so what we're talking about here is the speed of eating and the way you focus while eating. Uh, so again, this has clear parallels and carryover to uh, a recent episode about mindful eating. Uh, in that episode, I talked about how one of the ways mindful eating uh, can make dieting a little bit more tolerable is because it usually involves paying attention to your food, savoring your food, enjoying your food very thoroughly, and simultaneously eating at a slower rate. Um, and when we eat more slowly, a few things can happen ba based on the research that's available so far. Uh, number one, you have a longer time that you spend interacting with the flavors and the aromas of the meal. You chew more. You take time between bites. You know, you're really savoring this meal. And I'm going to use a completely made-up term here, um, but it is rooted in some findings. The way I frame this is that if you eat more slowly and you savor your meal, you experience what I call a greater satisfaction quotient. Uh, so basically, the, the sensory satisfaction per calorie consumed. Uh, it's a completely made-up term of a nonsensical metric, but you get the idea. You experience, as you're interacting more with the flavors and the aromas and you're savoring the meal, you get more arbitrary units of sensory satisfaction from enjoying that meal per calorie consumed in the meal. And it seems like that actually might uh, impact some processes related to memory and cognition. And what I mean by that is there, there seems to be some evidence that if we do savor a meal very intentionally, we have uh, what appears to be kind of a heightened memory of that satisfying eating experience. And that memory seems to carry over a bit throughout the remainder of the day, such that if you have uh, you know, this really satisfying lunch that's kind of burned into your memory because you really savored it and took your time with it, there is some evidence to, su to suggest that perhaps you might... Uh, unintentionally, without thinking about it, choose to consume fewer calories at dinner because of that prior lunch, uh, for example. Uh, another area where slow eating rates seem to be beneficial would be uh, in the realm of satiety signals. So there's this whole cascade of events that occurs when we are eating. Um, you know, our body gets these physiological signals that we are in fact eating, consuming, uh, you know, a mass of food with caloric content. There are a number of processes that kind of take place by which our body starts to receive the signal, okay, we're eating now, and eventually we have achieved a sufficient level of satiety. We're, we're satisfied with the amount we've eaten in this meal. Therefore, you know, this cascade of signaling events is going to occur, and our brain is going to get the message due to satiety hormones and kind of the downstream effects of those hormones interacting with their receptors the brain will get the message, okay, we've had enough here. It's time to discontinue the meal. And, event, and at this point, it's time to stop eating. Um, but though that whole cascade of events uh, where the satiety hormones are increasing in circulation, making it to the areas where their receptors are, 
you know, having all these downstream cellular effects after, you know, the, the hormone binds to the receptor, it takes time for these satiety signals to kick in. There is a bit of a lag between the time we're actually consuming and initiating and continuing the meal and the time where our brain finally gets that signal and says, okay, we've had enough, it's all good. And so there is some research indicating that if we slow our eating rate intentionally, we can allow more time for that whole cascade of events to occur. And it's very likely that we will receive and really fully interpret that message of high satiety before we've had an opportunity to consume a much greater number of calories at that meal. So what we're doing is giving our satiety hormones, in a way, a bit of a head start. And we're saying, hey, I'm going to let you go ahead and start conveying this message. I'm going to eat slowly, and therefore, my brain's going to really perceive that we've had enough here before I unintentionally consume more calories than, than I really need based on hunger and satiety levels. So all of these things in combination can uh, facilitate lower energy intake, and ultimately, these are strategies that can help us navigate hunger uh, pretty effectively when we are dieting. So like I said, so far, the two strategies are uh, adopting an acceptance-based approach to weight management, specifically as it pertains to hunger and food cravings. Number two, eating more slowly and savoring our meals. These are both strategies that can help us um, manage our appetite and hunger while dieting and make a low-calorie diet uh, a little bit more enjoyable uh, in terms of adhering to it and not being miserable throughout the process. Uh, number three, this is another one that we've talked about in a recent episode. Uh, we had an episode that was all about cardio for weight loss. And I talked a little bit about the relationship between physical activity or non-lifting exercise and appetite regulation. And number three here, uh, the third kind of strategy that we might utilize to manage hunger while dieting is to titrate the amount of non-lifting exercise. So what I'm talking about there is non-exercise physical activity and structured cardio type exercise. Now, the relationship between physical activity and appetite management is a little bit complicated. Um, so as I mentioned in that previous episode, if you're someone who is very, very sedentary at baseline uh, and you increase your physical activity level and become somewhat active. So you're going from extremely sedentary to kind of active or pretty active. When that occurs, uh, there seems to be research indicating that hunger and appetite become more tightly coupled to our energy expenditure. So, um, you know, when we think about what dictates uh, the amount of food that we eat, um, obviously it, it, it seems clear to me based on the literature that the amount we eat is not solely dictated by energy expenditure and energy intake and the balance between them. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be directly and solely dictated by hunger and satiety signals necessarily, like physiological needs for energy. It definitely seems that, uh, you know, certainly behavioral and psychological elements influence our, our total energy intake and also hedonic aspects of eating. And so when we talk about physical activity as it pertains to appetite management, there's one paper that kind of uh, presents a dichotomy between physiological determinants of energy intake and more hedonic determinants of energy intake. And 
what what we see uh, and the way that they they put it in the paper is homeostatic versus non-homeostatic inputs that influence our energy intake or our appetite. Uh, so the homeostatic stuff would be physiological needs for energy, physiological um, determinants of satiety levels. And then the non-homeostatic stuff would be things like just hedonic eating, which refers to eating because it is a pleasant experience. And, you know, we have reward centers in our brain that really light up and enjoy it when we eat things that taste good. So there's always this kind of balance between this hedonically driven eating and this homeostatic kind of physiologically driven eating. And the research would indicate, I, I, as I was starting before that kind of detour, when we go from very, very sedentary to kind of active, that increase in physical activity seems to recouple our appetite regulation to these homeostatic factors, the physiological factors that actually dictate our satiety signaling. And so what that means is, going from very sedentary to kind of active, in many cases, is going to reduce our non-homeostatic hedonic eating, and it's going to put us in a place where we are actually less likely to passively overeat because of these kind of hedonic drivers that are more focused on just seeking out the reward sensation of eating something that tastes good. So sometimes people will find if they go from very sedentary to kind of active, their energy intake actually goes down because they're recoupling uh, their satiety signaling and their appetite regulation to their actual energy expenditure rather than having this massive influence from non-homeostatic uh, non hedonic eating. So a little bit of physical activity in a previously sedentary person seems to actually enhance appetite regulation in a way that would make dieting a little bit easier and a little bit more tolerable. But a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are in a different position. A lot of folks who listen to this podcast are pretty active and do a pretty good amount of exercise throughout the week, whether it's physical, non-exercise physical activity or structured exercise. And the question is, how does exercise impact appetite in individuals who were already active at the start? So if someone who's already pretty active ramps up their physical activity very aggressively, how will that impact appetite? Now, acutely, it's pretty simple. Uh, in the acute sense, if we take a really active person and we put them through a brutal protocol of high-intensity interval training, really nasty anaerobic high-intensity stuff, for a couple hours after that exercise bout, we can safely expect that they are going to have a temporary transient reduction in appetite, but it'll come back. Um, and so this kind of temporary transient effect doesn't necessarily tell us over the course of a week if they're, they're going to eat more or less than they used to. Um, and, you know, we, we can have some confidence that in, in, you know, the first hour after exercise, they're probably going to eat less than they otherwise would. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, broader overall dietary intakes, what's going to happen three hours or four hours or five hours later? Are they going to kind of overcompensate and make up for that appetite suppression? That's kind of a, a pertinent question in the literature. And when we talk about the chronic impact of exercise on appetite, uh, what we really need to consider is to what extent is compensation happening, right? So what I mean by compensation is if someone ramps up their physical activity from pretty high to extremely high, they are going to increase their daily energy expenditure. And 
to, to some extent. And what that means is we should expect that, you know, if their appetite and satiety regulation is tightly coupled to their energy expenditure, there should be some, um, some upward pressure exerted on their appetite and hunger response. They should be, uh, you know, in eating at least a little bit more to make up for the fact that energy expenditure has gone up, or they should at least feel the urge to eat a little bit more in order to make up for the fact that energy expenditure has gone up. But the question is, what does that compensation look like? Will it be incomplete, complete, or overcompensation? So for example, if a person who's already pretty active ramps up their physical activity even more and becomes extremely active, and let's say they increase their total daily energy expenditure by, as they make this change, just arbitrary number, it goes up by 200 calories a day. If they have in, an incomplete compensatory increase in appetite, they might passively induce an energy deficit. And what I mean by that is if they increase their expenditure by 200 calories a day, but their appetite only increases enough that they kind of choose to eat an extra 150 calories a day, there's still a 50 calorie deficit there because their appetite and hunger response uh, was not fully um, compensating you know, or fully matching that increase in energy expenditure. So I would call that uh, just the terminology I like to use as an incomplete compensatory increase in hunger. So they increased expenditure 200 calories per day, but their hunger only kind of nudged them toward eating an additional 150 calories a day. We might find in that case that this person uh, is kind of unintentionally creating an energy deficit. Uh, and so in that case, introducing exercise to facilitate their weight loss goal, there's a net benefit there uh, when we look at it in a vacuum like that. Some folks might, um, might experience what we call a complete compensatory increase in hunger or appetite, such that they're basically nudged toward energy balance. So uh, this person might increase their energy expenditure by 200 calories a day, and if they just kind of follow their hunger cues and eat to the point of comfort, they might find that they naturally are just eating 200 extra calories a day, and they're totally compensating uh, for that increase in expenditure. And then, of course, there is the potential for overcompensation. So perhaps this person increases energy expenditure by 200 calories a day through added exercise, but maybe their appetite response is amplified to an exaggerated extent such that their, their hunger is nudging them toward eating maybe 300 extra calories per day. So in that case, we would see a scenario where this is kind of backfired. You know, if they were hoping that they were adding cardio to make their weight loss process a little bit easier or more tolerable, now they're actually introducing a situation where their hunger response to the exercise is exaggerated and amplified relative to uh, the net benefit of that extra energy expenditure. So they might find that because of this exaggerated appetite and hunger response, they've actually made their process a little bit harder. And in terms of managing hunger while dieting, they might have created more of an uphill battle than had they not introduced the exercise at all. So when we talk about, you know, it's pretty simple for people who are very inactive at baseline. If they go from super sedentary to kind of active, when we talk about managing hunger and appetite, we can expect that to actually have a beneficial effect um, when it comes to just more effectively managing their appetite while dieting. When it comes to someone who's already pretty active at baseline, now we have to wonder, is their appetite response going to be uh, incomplete? Is it going to be complete? Or is it going to be essentially an overcompensation 
where they're driven to eat uh, enough food just based on their hunger response that would actually put them in a net surplus in terms of energy. Uh, and so which of those three options seems to be observed in the literature? Unfortunately, it's pretty complicated. Um, you know, there are a lot of papers in this area that seem to be very conflicting. Um, the question is, the conflicting findings in this area, is it a matter of true inter-individual variation and in responses? So is it true that just different human beings respond to this physiological thing truly in a different manner? Or are we seeing inconsistent findings because the methods are different from study to study? And you know, what, what we're not really certain of is across all these mixed findings that, that, that seem to be very uh, heterogeneous and very inconsistent, are we seeing true inter-individual variation or are we, are we seeing variation that is driven by differences in study methods and study design? Unfortunately, I don't think I'm ready to give a, a firm answer on that. But what I can say is based on the literature, when an active person increases energy expenditure and we're trying to, to figure out what is the net impact on their appetite, is it going to be so small that you know they're kind of nudged toward a deficit? Is it going to be totally exaggerated to the point that they're actually making uh, their hunger management more challenging on the diet? It seems to just depend uh, from study to study. And so my kind of practical takeaway from looking at that literature um, is I'd love to see more of it. I I'm interested in seeing uh, if we can start to really parse some of that variation and figure out what's driving it. But for now, my practical recommendation is to simply let your experience guide the way. Um, and what that means is we can view this physical activity level as a modifiable variable that can have an impact on hunger and appetite. So it could be a lever that we could pull in order to influence hunger and appetite management while we're dieting, but the direction seems to vary uh, in terms of how we actually manipulate this variable. And what I mean by that is there might be some folks who are doing a dieting phase, they're really struggling with hunger. It seems to be really getting out of control. There might be some folks where if you say, hey, you know what, let's just do a little bit less physical activity, that might actually help them manage their hunger better. For other folks, it's very possible that you could say, you know what, it might be beneficial to actually ramp up some of your physical activity um, and, and perhaps that'll allow us to eat more while maintaining the same uh, net caloric deficit. For some people, uh, having a higher reliance on physical activity when establishing the deficit, it actually might help them uh, navigate and manage their hunger and appetite better. So there are some situations where if you're struggling with hunger, perhaps leaning more on physical activity could be helpful, but for other individuals, scaling back physical activity might be helpful when it comes to managing hunger. So I know that's uh, kind of a long mini segment that leads us to uh, a bit of an unsatisfying conclusion, but it's important to recognize that people do seem to respond uh, in terms of hunger and appetite. People seem to respond to big changes in physical activity, but the direction and magnitude of that response seems to be quite variable. So it is a thing that can be manipulated, but when it comes to how you manipulate that, you probably want to let your individual experience guide the way. Or if you're coaching someone, really be uh, attentive and listen to that individual's uh, experience 
you know, ask them how it's going and really take that experience seriously and let it guide the direction for the future. Now, number four, uh, something to help manage hunger and appetite while dieting would be reducing energy density uh, and specifically meal level energy density. And as, as a side note, when we talk about reducing energy density, I like to encourage people to make the easy swaps first. And I'll explain what that means in a second. But when, when we talk about energy density, um, you know, energy density is a pretty, pretty simple metric. What we're talking about is the calories of a serving of food uh, relative to the mass or volume. Uh, in the research, it's scaled relative to mass. Um, but, you know, sometimes people, when we, when we think about energy density in the simplest form, a lot of times we just talk about filling up a plate, a plate or filling up a bowl and saying, okay, two bowls, they're the same size. We're filling them both with food. If we have low energy density, there might only be 200 calories of food in this bowl. If we're going with higher energy density, there might be four times that many calories within this bowl. So the volume that's being filled is the same. They're covering the same area of the plate, for example. Uh, but energy density basically tells us for a given just chunk of food, whether we're measuring it as mass or volume or area on a plate, you know, which of these options has more calories, you know, so energy density is the energy content of food scaled to, you know, the mass or the volume of that serving of food. Uh, so easy example, you know, you could have, uh, you know, a, a big bowl of watermelon or a, a big plate of cheesecake. And let's say they weigh exactly the same. If you eat all of it, you know, I mean, the watermelon is going to be way lower in calories per gram or per unit volume than the cheesecake, you know, so th th that's what we're talking about with energy density. And when we look at foods with low energy density, uh, we're talking about foods that typically have a lot of water content, a lot of fiber content, usually, uh, you know, uh, high fiber uh, vegetables come to mind, uh, melons, berries, you know, fruits that have relatively low calories per serving weight. These are foods with low energy den density. And there was a recent paper by Flynn and colleagues um, that I'll link in the show notes. We actually did a research spotlight about that. So if you're on the Stronger by Science email newsletter, you, you probably already have heard about this. But Flynn and colleagues were, were really interested in answering or exploring a pretty simple question. And the question was, what actually signals when we're done with a meal? What, what is the signal that causes us to discontinue eating? when we initiate a meal. And they basically had uh, two different ideas. You know, one signal that could, encourage us, that could encourage us to discontinue a meal would be the volume of food, right? So you could think of eating a giant bowl of vegetables. Um, probably the thing that's going to make you full is just the sheer volume of what you're eating rather than the number of calories that you have eaten. Uh, it's very likely that the volume signal that you're you're experiencing as your stomach fills up with with literal matter, uh, you know, that takes up a high volume of space in your stomach, that is probably what's going to be the thing dictating when you stop eating, rather than a particular caloric value that you reach. Now, on the other hand, it does seem like calorie content is a useful signal. Um, you know, so when you're eating something that is just very, very uh, energy dense, if you're thinking of like a dessert food, a very, very rich dessert that is just very heavy, 
uh, you know, you're probably not going to eat a massive, massive, massive amount of it because it'll just be so heavy. You know, I mean, you, you can sense as you're eating something that is just extremely calorically dense, like, man, I am really filling up here, even though the actual volume of food is not really all that much. And so what they're interested in looking at is, uh, you know, how does energy density predict when we are going to discontinue a meal or decide that we have basically had enough of whatever we're eating? And they created uh, a two-component model uh, by which they um, kind of indicated how energy density pertains to these two different signals that can initiate the termination of a meal. And so what they what they decided was, uh, you know, based on a, a really thorough analysis of empirical data, the the data indicated that when energy density for the entire meal is very very low, volume is the dominant signal that basically leads us to discontinue a meal and stop eating. However, as the energy density of the meal starts to increase, uh, the actual caloric intake, the calorie content of the meal, takes over as the dominant signal. Uh, and so this kind of makes sense intuitively. You know, if we get back to that example, a big serving of watermelon, uh, a big serving of cheesecake we're not necessarily going to eat the same volume of food if we just eat both to our heart's content on two separate occasions. It's not necessarily the volume that always dictates how much we're going to eat. You know, we're probably going to eat more volume of the watermelon than the cheesecake uh, if we have enough of both available and we're just told to eat until we're content. Uh, but at the same time, it's not like we're just going to keep eating the water. You know, we're not going to eat the same exact calorie content either. Um, so we're, we're, we're not going to eat the same volume of these two different foods, nor are we going to eat the same calorie content of these two different foods, there's clearly an interplay between the volume signal and the calorie content signal, and energy density seems to be the variable that helps us determine uh, when we are going to discontinue a meal and which of those signals is going to be the first one to basically step in and say, all right, you're done, <laughs> you've had plenty, it's probably time to end the meal here. So it's not just one or the other, it's a convergence of both and the meal-level energy density seems to be the factor that really dictates uh, the, the interplay between those two signals. So the paper by Flynn and colleagues, basically what they found is there was a bit of a threshold area where, uh, where, where the main signal starts to change. So if you're eating a meal and the energy density of the entire meal is less than about 1.75 calories per gram, then volume is probably going to be the key signal that causes you to discontinue that meal. However, as you start eating meals that are more calorically dense, uh, there is a greater likelihood that the calorie content signal is going to terminate the meal before the volume signal kicks in. And again, we're talking about uh, energy density for the whole meal. Once it starts to get above, you know, 1.75 to 2.53. I mean, the more it starts climbing up, the more that calorie content becomes the dominant signal and the actual volume of food that you're eating becomes a much less noteworthy um, determinant of how much you're actually going to eat in that meal. Now, I've said on several occasions, I've really uh, reiterated the term meal level energy density. And the reason I say that is this research does seem to indicate, um, just based on the theory that it proposes, 
the energy density of specific foods probably doesn't matter all that much. It really does come down to the average meal level energy density. The reason I say that is sometimes people will have this really, really energy dense meal and they'll say, you know what? Maybe I'll throw a piece of celery on the plate. You know, nice low energy density food that that'll make it so that I fill up with this stock of celery and then I'll eat less of the other stuff. Probably not the case. Unless you're making a pretty noteworthy shift in the meal level energy density. So for example, if you're sitting down with a meal and the energy density of this meal is like three kilocalories per gram, if you're knocking that down from three to 2.8, it probably doesn't matter at all. Okay. So that probably would not be an effective way to utilize this research. But if you were able to knock it down from three all the way down to one or 1 1.5, then you might be putting yourself in a position where the volume signal takes over and it causes you to discontinue that meal before you eat a much higher uh, calorie content. So if we can get the meal level energy density down below 1.75 or 1.5 kilocalories per gram, it increases the likelihood that we're going to fill up on volume before we get into a position to eat way more calories than we intended. But as the energy density starts getting really, really high for that meal, it probably means that we're, we're, we're more likely to overeat because that volume signal is not going to jump in and cut us off ahead of time. Now, another thing I mentioned when I was talking about this concept is making the easy swaps first. So sometimes people say, man, I mean, changing the energy density of my meal, it means I'm going to have to, you know, develop totally different eating preferences, totally different style of eating, maybe branch out into completely different cuisines that are more conducive to low energy density meals. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, one of the biggest swaps I made lately is um, I, I started uh, replacing some of my white rice that I eat with riced cauliflower. And I know that there, there's a whole, uh, <laughs> an army of people who are like, please stop replacing everything with cauliflower. Uh, but honestly, I think cauliflower rice is a pretty good substitute, especially when you consider the context in which I'm eating it. I'm usually making, you know, mixing up rice with some veggies, some chickpeas, some teriyaki sauce, some soy sauce. It's a really nice kind of stir fried kind of dish. And honestly, if I swap out the white rice and I bring in the cauliflower rice uh, or the riced cauliflower, I should say, uh, I don't really notice much of a difference in terms of enjoyment. Uh, I know some people are going to think that's crazy, uh, but it does allow me to really meaningfully change the energy density of that meal with a very simple swap that doesn't really require a big change or overhaul when it comes to my dietary habits and preferences. So when we talk about reducing energy density, two really important points. First of all, it's all about energy density of the meal. If you're just bringing in a tiny bit of food with low energy density in the context of a meal that is super high in energy density, that little introduction of one extra food, it's probably not going to matter all that much. Um, so yeah, like I said, we're talking about meal level energy density, and we really want to make sure that we are making the easy swaps first. I, I think that's the most practical way uh, to apply this particular strategy. As the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values, we know that protecting families is important. 
Right you are, Eric. But I will note there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart. And I should note, if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard for sports nutrition scope of practice for its members. This ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the Sports Nutrition Association. If you already meet their minimum education requirements, you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today. Uh, If you don't meet those education requirements yet, you can enroll in the certificate program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. Now, number five, another strategy for managing hunger and appetite during weight loss or a calorie-restricted diet. Number five is to opt for harder food textures. And this is another one that has been covered in a research spotlight on Stronger by Science. So if you're on the email list, you're probably already aware of this. Um, In that research spotlight, I covered a study by Teo and colleagues, and what they found was something that's been found multiple times before, which is that when you eat harder foods, uh, you tend to passively make the decision to eat fewer calories in that meal. So by eating harder food textures or more viscous food textures that require more chewing, more swallowing, more savoring, when we eat these harder or more viscous textures, we do tend to passively eat less without intentionally trying to eat less. And there are a few things at play here. Um, So when you're eating a food that is harder in texture or more viscous, uh, in many cases, it will have more fiber, which can have uh, an effect that promotes satiety. Uh, In many cases, you're going to have more mass or volume per calorie consumed. In other words, you're probably going to have uh, lower energy density. Uh, You're probably going to have a slower eating rate. Uh, You know, if if food is harder or more viscous, you know, a lot of times you have to chew it more or you have to slow down the rate at which you consume it. Uh, Once again, as an extension of all this chewing and slowing down, you're probably going to have longer interaction time with the flavors and the aromas of that meal. Uh, And another thing is that just the 
the mouthfeel tends to be a little bit less conducive to passive overeating. So the texture itself is probably a little bit less conducive to a high level of snackability and passive overconsumption of calories. So when we look at the combined impact of eating foods that are just having a general tendency toward foods that are harder or more viscous in terms of their texture, we're probably leveraging that term I mentioned previously, that increased uh, satisfaction quotient. You know, we are having more sensory satisfaction per calorie consumed uh, because we are slowing down and savoring just so we don't choke on it, basically. Uh, this can feed into a heightened memory of that satisfactory eating experience. This can give us a little more time for our satiety signals to kick in, and ultimately it can facilitate lower energy intake without, um, you know, without a whole lot of planning or intentional effort toward additional restriction. So this is another area where some folks, if they're aiming for the same calorie target and they're dieting and hunger is a common thing for them, they might find that if they just switch over to some foods with slightly harder or more viscous textures, they might find that this low-calorie diet becomes a little bit more tolerable and helps them manage their hunger and appetite just a little bit more effectively. Uh, number six. Number six is minimizing foods that are hyper-palatable. Uh, and so when we talk about hyper-palatable foods, we're talking about foods that taste really, 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 really kind of unnaturally good, right? So some of these foods um, that, that are really designed specifically to hit all the right notes and be just incredibly, incredibly tasty. Um, now, I don't want to make the appeal to nature fallacy and act like food companies that make foods that taste great are evil or that they're doing something wrong. Food companies want to make foods that taste good. That, that's why they're in the food business is so people will love their food. I don't think that that's a wrong thing. You know, I, I want to go up to a chef who's very good at cooking and say, man, it, it, it's really a disgrace that, that you are making this food taste so good. Like you should be ashamed of that. Obviously, that, 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 I mean, that's not my perspective. Um, so I don't want to demonize foods that are hyper palatable because, you know, people who are chefs, they work very hard to make their foods taste excellent. Uh, people who work in the, uh, the food industry, they work very hard to make their foods taste great because uh, they want consumers to be satisfied. But the problem is when foods are hyper palatable and really, really, really good, um, you know, better than we could ever even imagine <laughs> encountering, um, you know, in the um, hunter gatherer world without, you know, these um, remarkably complex food combinations. When we're eating these hyper palatable foods, it can create uh, a pretty significant challenge when it comes to enjoying and adhering to a low calorie diet or just making a low calorie diet tolerable in the context of weight loss. Now, the reason that these hyper palatable foods make things more challenging is because uh, as we're rep regulating uh, appetite and desire to eat, the brain is constantly balancing a number of different inputs. So when we're trying to ma manage appetite, hunger, desire to eat, th there are many different inputs that, that get factored into that. So one is just good old-fashioned hunger, and as an extension of that, good old-fashioned you know, physiological satiety signals. But the brain is also considering reward responses. So our hunger centers, our satiety centers, our reward centers in the brain are doing this delicate dance with one another to try to coordinate our decisions pertaining to uh, what we eat, you know, coordinating our appetite and our desire to eat. 
So when we're dieting, we have, in many cases, we'll, we'll have periods where hunger is high, uh, where satiety is low, but also where our reward centers in our brain seem to be hyper-responsive to really palatable foods. So it's not just that hyperpalatable foods have extra calories in them. It's that when we're dieting and restricting calories, we actually do have, we appear to have an exaggerated uh, neurophysiological response to the intake of hyperpalatable foods. Um, and so what we see is when we, uh, when we combine these factors of increased hunger, reduced, reduced satiety, uh, and amplified reward response to food in the brain, and then we introduce a hyperpalatable food, in many cases, that is going to be a recipe for overeating and, and more, more specifically, unintentional overeating that causes us to deviate from our goals. Or, you know, sometimes it doesn't cause us to deviate from our goals, but it just makes adhering to our, our dietary uh, plan way harder than it needs to be. So this comes up a lot in, you know, in the natural bodybuilding world. There's a lot of folks who got into you know, the if it fits your macros, flexible dieting style of dieting. And it works. You know, if you're hitting your targets on a daily basis, you're going to get in shape. It, it's been proven time and time again. Not really controversial to say that. However, uh, I have encountered uh, bodybuilders and physique athletes who take this approach and they engage in a style of eating that is... Uh, it, it's really not doing them any favors. And what I mean by that is they will say, okay, today my calorie goal is 2,200 calories. I am going to navigate, you know, navigate this calorie target and construct my diet today in a way that maximizes hyperpalatability at the expense of all other considerations. And so what I mean by that is you know, instead of having, you know, a piece of chicken, uh, some veggies, maybe a little sweet potato, maybe just a little bit of something for dessert, the meal just becomes like, yeah, I made this like chocolate peanut butter protein pudding and I've got this low calorie ice cream and I'm going to throw a pop tart in there and some low calorie cupcakes that I made. All of a sudden it's like every element of the meal is a dessert food that is designed to be as palatable as you could possibly get using low calorie alternatives and things like that. Now, none of those things in a vacuum is necessarily unfavorable or deleterious or bad in any way. But when you are designing the entirety of your diet to maximize hyperpalatability on a low calorie diet, you're probably not doing yourself a lot of favors. And in fact, what I found over the years is when people do that, they're more likely to deviate from their diet because all of this hyperpalatability is is really just overriding their ability to just terminate the meal and stop eating when it's time to stop eating. Um, so, so I've seen that people either will overeat because of that, or they will adhere to their diet and, and adhere to their macro targets and calorie targets, but the process is very painful. I mean, they, they get to the point where they construct these meals that are hyperpalatable, but it's not helping them reduce their hunger or increase their satiety very much. The hyperpalatability is off the charts. So even when they are able to terminate that meal at the right time, it is just devastating when they have to finally put the spoon down and say, okay, no more servings of these, you know, low calorie protein cupcakes that I've been, you know, you know, going to town on. 
Um, so I noticed that people, uh, they just make it way harder to stick to their diet because in a weird way, they've kind of made their diet too tasty <laughs> to, to be effective for what they're trying to do. And I know that sounds really silly, but when we are on a calorie restricted diet, we can use palatability as a modifiable variable to set us up for success. And what I mean by that is we want our meals to be palatable enough to be enjoyable, but not so palatable that the end of the meal is a tragic event where we say, oh, I can't believe I have to stop eating. That stuff was so incredible. So what we want to try to do here when we're constructing a diet, you know, not the targets for the diet, we've got the targets. When we're starting to, to construct actual meals and figure out what actual foods are going into this, we want to make sure that we're not just thinking about what is, how, how could I make this as hyper palatable as possible given the constraints of my calorie target? What we want to think about is how can I make this good enough to be enjoyable, but not so good that it's going to be tragic when I have to stop eating this meal? And how can I use food choices that are going to be not just conducive to promoting palatability, but also conducive to promoting, uh, you know, fullness, satiety, reducing hunger, things of that nature. So before you get on a diet and say, how am I going to make the, um, the perfect low calorie, high protein cake and ice cream meal? Think about, and, and, and I'm not saying that any of those foods are bad. You know, I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm saying, you know, uh, because hyper palatable foods tend to be, you know, kind of a, a modern invention due to the, you know, appeal the nature fallacy that makes them bad. That's not the case. That's not what I believe. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of these hyper palatable foods in isolation, but I am saying if you're on a calorie restricted diet and you're struggling with hunger and appetite management, introducing more hyper palatable foods, even if they fit your macros, is probably not the best strategy for you. And in fact, you might want to work the other direction and say, how can I have a satisfying diet that is perhaps a little bit less palatable uh, in a way that's going to help me uh, really stick to my dietary goals effectively? Now, number seven here, the seventh strategy, um, this, this is going to, uh, again, pertain a bit to food selection. So you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, food selection in terms of energy density, food texture, uh, palatability. Number seven here is to, the, the general idea is to end a meal strategically. And this uh, is a funny little uh, tip that I've picked up over the years. It's one of the few instances where I noticed something very, very strongly anecdotally in my personal experience. And then I said, that seems weird that this seems like such a strong and repeatable effect that I'm observing. Is there research to support this? And the research was so on the nose. I really was like, I okay. Like it was one of those magic situations where my lived experience was just perfectly reflective of the research out there. And I simply didn't know the research existed beforehand. Um, and so perhaps I'm just, you know, committing an act of confirmation bias there. But the background here, is that I noticed when I was uh, a competitive bodybuilder, you know, prepping really hard, uh, satiety was hard to come by. But I noticed that when I was eating really, really spicy meals, I had a lower desire to eat after that meal. It was helping me really uh, reduce my likelihood of wanting to seek out more food when the meal was done. So spicy meals were having that effect for me. 
uh, and I was just dumping uh, cayenne pepper and black pepper on all my meals and making them really, really spicy, hot sauces, all that stuff. Um, and the reason I did that was simple. I mean, when you get to a really low calorie diet, a lot of the condiments and sauces that you would typically use, you know, they start to be just too calorically dense. You can't really spare the calories um, for those sauces and condiments. So I got to the point where I was using very low calorie, spicy hot sauces, and then just getting straight to the, the spices themselves. Um, so I noticed that spicy meals were helping me uh, reduce my desire to eat. I also noticed that when I was drinking more green tea, either between meals or directly after a meal, I was also noticing a lower desire to eat. So I looked into the research eventually because I was like, this is crazy. This is a really repeatable effect that I'm observing. And I found the research that was just completely on the nose. So one example was a paper by Reinbach and colleagues, which I'm going to link in the show notes here. Um, but they specifically looked at capsaicin and green tea. So capsaicin um, you know, is um, a, a component of spicy peppers that really gives them their kick. Uh, and then, of course, you know, green tea was the other thing they looked at. And they found that capsaicin and green tea uh, suppressed hunger and increased satiety, particularly uh, in the context of an energy deficit. Um, and so that paper was looking at hunger and satiety, but I also suspect that desire to eat plays a pretty big role beyond the impact of hunger and satiety. And I, I know it sometimes it's tempting to wrap those things together, but there are some differences between hunger and satiety and something like desire to eat. And desire to eat is exactly what it sounds like. Um, you know, it, there are some situations where you could be slightly hungry, but still have no desire to eat. So desire to eat isn't just hunger and satiety. It also brings in elements of things like appetite and uh, hedonic elements of, of seeking out an eating experience. And so with desire to eat, um, you know, I think that the easy, easiest example is my experience with green tea. So if I think about green tea, and this is of course an opinion, this is totally subjective, but when I think about, you know, what food that I eat on a regular basis goes really well with green tea, the answer is nothing. Uh, for me, based on my flavor preferences, if I'm drinking plain green tea, there's really not a food that I want to pair with it. I, I enjoy the green tea, but it kind of just kills my desire to eat anything else just by nature of the flavor it has. Uh, now, in if we look at a different example, if I think about uh, what goes well with coffee, uh, well, uh, you know, a pastry, a cookie, ice cream, uh, a nice, uh, you know, creamy cocktail beverage. I mean, literally everything goes with coffee. I could, I could eat almost anything and say, yeah, coffee made that better and that made my coffee better, you know? So um, I, I think in a very simple way, uh, if we introduce some of these foods that lower our desire to eat based on our personal experience, it can help us end meals when the meals are done. And so that is something that I noticed, and then after noticing it repeatedly, started to implement strategically. If I was having a meal and getting toward the end of it, I was like, ah, I feel like at the end of this meal, I'm going to want to eat more, and I'd like to proactively get ahead of that desire to eat. I'll start, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll put the kettle on, get the water going, and say, when I finish this serving of food, I'm going to have a cup of green tea. And then I'll reassess and see if I feel different after. Uh, and almost always, I feel very differently after a cup of green tea. I say, actually, you know what? I am pretty satisfied. I don't think I want to deviate from my plan and have a second or a third portion of whatever I was eating. Uh, now, number eight, the final one I want to cover here 
is very simple and it's just eat enough fiber and eat enough protein. Uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because th this is very straightforward. And most people who are listening to the Stronger by Science podcast are already eating enough fiber and eating enough protein. Uh, just a few uh, things I want to point out. First of all, if you are eating a diet that is high in fiber and high in protein, there is a good chance that you're eating a, a diet that has relatively low energy density and that you're eating a diet that has uh, a lot of foods that are, um, you know, like I said, low energy density, but also, you know, potentially some harder textures, um, you know, perhaps, you know, not using a lot of foods that are super hyper palatable, like ultra processed foods. You know, if you're incorporating a lot of protein and a lot of fiber into the diet and it, you know, a lot of lifters who are eating a high fiber, high protein diet, you're going to see a lot of vegetables, fruits, lean meat sources. Uh, you're going to see a lot of relatively unprocessed uh, cereals and, and grain products or, you know, cereal and grain products that just have a relatively low level of processing. So when we talk about eating enough protein and fiber, it, there is an interplay with some of the previous strategies I mentioned with things like energy density, uh, food texture, palatability, and things like that. Of course, there are many exceptions to these links that I'm drawing. I mean, you, you could create a remarkably hyperpalatable uh, meal plan that has plenty of fiber and protein. You could uh, create a meal plan with plenty of fiber and protein that if you really go out of your way, could still uh, have very few, very few foods with low energy density uh, or very few foods with uh, hard or very viscous texture. So I'm not saying that this is a universal rule, but if we're looking at correlates of, you know, what would this diet look like? There probably are some links between getting enough fiber and protein and kind of checking some of the boxes I've already mentioned. Uh, a couple of things I want to mention though. Number one, not all fibers and, and not all proteins have the same effect. So different fiber sources and different protein sources are going to differ in terms of really key characteristics, such as their viscosity, their texture, their palatability, and things of that nature. Uh, so it's important to recognize that, we, you know, this is a very simplistic uh, tip, which is to get plenty of fiber and plenty of protein. Uh, but drinking a lot of delicious chocolate protein shakes is not the same thing as eating a lot of very bland, uh, poorly prepared chicken breasts that taste terrible. One of those is going to have a bigger impact on desire to eat and, and hunger management than the other. They differ in many ways. Uh, the same is true with fibers. Not all fibers impact um, uh, hunger, satiety, appetite regulation the same way. They can vary quite considerably in terms of their physical characteristics and viscosity. Uh, and so these are general uh, heuristics or general tips, uh, but not all fiber sources and protein sources are going to have the same impact when it comes to regulating hunger and appetite. Um, when it comes to, you know, fiber's impact, uh, it's worth noting that uh, some of its impact on, uh, you know, a, a portion of its impact on hunger and satiety could be related to the fact that High fiber foods tend to have low energy density and they do tend to involve more chewing uh, and by extension, slower eating rates. So I, I would entertain the idea. Sometimes people push back and they say, well, the, the research on fiber 
as it pertains to hunger and satiety management, you know, it could be confounded by the fact that the high fiber options that seem to help with hunger regulation, they tend to be in studies where they also have lower energy density, harder or more viscous textures. They are eaten more slowly. They have more chewing. There is a good argument to make that some of what we're attributing to fiber might actually have more to do with it, the energy density of the food that contains the fiber or uh, the way, you know, the, the physical characteristics of that food product. So that is a caveat that I do think is, is worth mentioning. Um, nonetheless, I, I think it, the practical recommendation still ends up being, hey, try to go out and incorporate some whole food um, uh, things into your diet that tend to have fiber. So bring in some fibrous vegetables, some fibrous fruits, some fibrous uh, grain products that are, you know, to some, to some extent minimally processed, um, that, that should probably be uh, pretty helpful when you're on a calorie-restricted diet. Uh, another caveat I want to bring up here pertains to protein. So there's a really interesting uh, study that I reviewed back in the day for the Mass Research Review. It was at least a couple of years ago now. And they were looking, it was a meta-analysis on the impact of protein on hunger and satiety levels. And one of the observations that was very interesting was that the impact, you know, the study did fire, the meta-analysis did report and find that protein generally had a favorable effect in terms of increasing satiety, reducing hunger. Uh, however, they did see some indication in the data that perhaps protein's impact might wear off over time. We might basically adapt. If, if we do a bump in protein intake as a strategic method to try to enhance hunger and satiety regulation, it is possible that we will observe an initial benefit, but then adapt to it. And that benefit will wear off, will wear off uh, either partially or completely over time. And so what that would mean, if, if future research bears that out, it would mean that practically speaking, you can only pull that lever so many times uh, because ultimately, you know, you're trying to do this because you're on a low calorie diet and you're trying to navigate hunger related challenges. So if you just keep bumping your protein again and again and again, eventually your calorie intake is going to get so high that you're not really on a low calorie diet anymore. And so that, that's going to ultimately defeat the purpose of using protein for this particular outcome. So what that means is uh, protein, we can probably use that um, when we're really in a pinch to try to get a nice little boost in satiety and help navigate hunger a little bit. Uh, but we might adapt to it. And there's only so many times we can pull that lever during a dieting phase. So when I'm working with someone who is uh, really digging into a very arduous dieting phase, I do hesitate a little bit. I mean, we're, all, we're typically going to be on a high-protein diet anyway in order to support uh, the growth or maintenance of muscle mass and fat-free mass. Uh, there will be instances where I strategically will bump protein to help out a little bit with satiety, but those changes are few and far between, and they have to be done very strategically because... You can't just do it over and over and over. Uh, you will reach a, a practical limit at which you can no longer justify bumping protein because you're either going to have to really critically displace carbohydrate and fat from the diet, or you're going to have to let the calorie target get so high 
that we're not really on a low-calorie diet anymore, and it defeats the purpose. So, wrapping up here, in summary, if we are trying to facilitate hunger and appetite management during weight loss or, do it, or during a calorie-restricted diet, there are eight tips that I think uh, can be helpful. Uh, number one, adopt an acceptance-based approach to weight management. Number two, eat slow and savor your food. Number three, uh, adjust and titrate your amount of non-lifting exercise and physical activity. Number four, reduce meal-level energy density and make the easy swaps first. Number five, when possible, opt for harder food textures. Number six, uh, when possible, again, minimize foods that are hyper-palatable or minimize their role in your diet. Uh, number seven, end the meal strategically with a food that disincentivizes you from continuing the meal further. And then number eight, uh, titrate your fiber and your protein intake strategically. Now that leads me to a very valid question. What do we do if we're bulking? Um, and I, I do want to mention, I, I wrote a pretty long article with a lot of different tips for bulking. So I, if you are bulking up and looking for uh, some guidance there, I would encourage you to check out that article. I'm going to link it in the show notes. It's at strongerbyscience.com slash bulking. Uh, but if you're bulking and you're worried about how do I deal with a suppressed appetite, which is very, very common. Uh, there are a lot of folks who they've been bulking up for a while. And if you talk to them, they say, I'm sick of it. I can't do it anymore. I am so full all the time. The thought of eating makes me feel sick to my stomach. Appetite suppression is a real challenge sometimes with bulking. And what's really convenient is we don't really have to do too much here uh, to, to, to recover a bunch of ground because when, when it comes to strategically navigating appetite suppression during a bulk or a weight gain phase, what we're going to do is we're going to take all those tips for weight loss phases and just invert them. And, and they end up being pretty good guidance, pretty good advice for navigating a suppressed appetite while bulking. So for example, number one was adopt an acceptance-based approach. In this case, instead of reframing our relationship to hunger or food cravings, we want to reframe our relationship to fullness and lack of appetite. So we're still reframing, we're still viewing it the same way. Uh, you know, that, that river metaphor with the leaves floating by is still pertinent here, uh, but we are looking at it from a very, very different perspective. Number two, uh, you know, my, my, uh, the weight loss approach is to eat slow and savor. We can flip that around and say, well, perhaps if you do a little bit of distracted eating, a little bit of mindless snacking throughout the day, perhaps that'll be a helpful way for you to get, to get extra calories in, uh, you know, w without feeling uh, a, a really exaggerated response in terms of appetite suppression from that calorie intake. So perhaps we can use distracted eating and mindless snacking to our advantage when we're trying to bulk up. Uh, number three, titrate your amount of non-lifting exercise and physical activity. That still applies because like I said, the directionality of that relationship can be a little bit unpredictable. So there are some folks who are uh, exercising, they're bulking, and they notice that they're struggling with a suppressed appetite. Sometimes folks will reduce their physical activity and it'll help out quite a lot. Other folks, they'll actually exercise a little bit more and it'll help them tap into uh, a bigger appetite. So 
a lot of variability there, but still a variable that we can manipulate, uh, you know, to our advantage while bulking. You just have to do it in a very individualized way and figure out how you personally respond to changes in physical activity level. Number four was to reduce meal level energy density and to make the easy swaps first. Uh, in this case, we, we could facilitate bulking by increasing meal level energy density. And the, the thing I always say here is sometimes it feels wrong, you know? So there are a lot of folks who, you know, uh, are, are bulking up and struggling. They say, I just can't gain weight. And if you give them some little simple recommendations, like, hey, have you tried having a candy bar at the end of your meal? And they're like, well, but if I eat candy, I'm going to get fat. And it's like, well, no, you're not. Like, all we're trying to do here is supplement your diet with calories. If we do that with broccoli instead of candy bars, it's going to be a lot harder. I promise. It's going to be hard to eat a 4,000 calorie, 5,000 calorie a day diet if you're doing chicken breast and broccoli, right? So I'll encourage people, do the easy additions first when we're trying to bump up energy density. Of course, the first thing would be to unravel any swaps you made previously. So if I were trying to bulk up, I would get rid of the riced cauliflower and put some white rice back in the mix. That's a pretty easy swap in the other direction. Uh, but yeah, increase meal level energy density, even if the choices feel wrong, because all we're trying to do there is supplement the diet with calories. And frankly, uh, probably doesn't matter where they're coming from. If you're bulking, you're probably, you probably have your bases covered. You're probably getting enough fiber, uh, enough micronutrients, you know, we're not really worried that if you add in a candy bar, it's going to displace critical nutrients that you need to be healthy. Most likely scenario is you're eating more than enough of just about everything, and we're just trying to get more calories in there. Another one that people say, you know, is makes them really, uh, people are, are really taken aback when you say like, hey, have you considered just sipping on a caloric beverage throughout the day? You know, something like a fruit juice or uh, even a, even a soft drink, you know, a Coca-Cola, whatever you need. You know, we just need to get some calories in here. Sip on a sports beverage if you need to. Uh, you know, a lot of times people will kind of balk at that, uh, particular recommendation, but, uh, you know, it, it's not my, my typical general health advice is not to sip on sugary, you know, sweetened beverages all day. Uh, but nonetheless, there is a time and a place where it might make sense to do that. Uh, number five was opting for harder food textures. If bulking, we want to do the opposite. You know, we want to incorporate softer textures, uh, things that have a higher level of processing, which usually creates a better mouthfeel, uh, enables a faster eating rate, and generally encourages more passive increases in caloric consumption. So we want to take that harder food recommendation, completely flip it on its head and say, let's go for softer food textures. Let's go for food textures that are less viscous, uh, and that can be advantageous. Number six was minimize foods that are hyperpalatable. Uh, the reality is hyperpalatable foods make it easier to overconsume calories, or, or I should say to consume more calories. If you're on a weight loss diet, that's not good. If you're trying to gain weight and struggling, that's excellent because what we can do is, you know, when we're bulking up and appetite is suppressed, hunger levels are very low, satiety levels are very high. What we would like to do is try to find a way to partially override the hunger and satiety component of uh, food intake regulation, we want to really stimulate those reward centers in the brain so that we can kind of power through and say, you know, I'm not really hungry, but man, this tastes great. So I'm going to go ahead and keep on eating anyway. Uh, so we can actually ramp up the palatability of the food we're eating when bulking 
in a way that can be strategically advantageous. Uh, number seven was ending the meal strategically and specifically ending a meal with foods that disincentivize further caloric intake. If we're bulking up, we can do the opposite, you know, so we want to, um, you know, avoid foods that disincentivize further consumption at the end of the meal. So like I said, if I were cutting at the end of a meal, I might have a cup of green tea because to me that just kind of kills my desire to eat. If I were bulking, maybe I would say, you know what, I'm going to have a cup of coffee and a, and a lovely pastry that goes with that coffee or a piece of cake or some ice cream, you know. Uh, so you want to think about avoiding the foods that kind of blunt your appetite at the end of a meal or between meals. And you want to think about complementary food pairings that might actually boost your intake without making it feel like eating more is a burden or a chore. You want to make it a really pleasant experience to end your meal with something that actually allows you to get some extra calories in there uh, before the meal is over. And then number eight uh, is titrating fiber and protein strategically. Uh, there have been some scenarios where I've seen individuals who strategically aim for the lower end of the advisable fiber intake range, and they also strategically aim for the lower end of the advisable protein intake range. And they do that specifically while bulking so that it's just a little bit easier to get in more calories from hyperpalatable foods that have plenty of fat, plenty of carbohydrate, things like that. So it's not that they're going on a super low protein diet. If we're bulking up, that's not what we want to do. Um, but like I said, it, it's just about titrating fiber and protein to find the right balance where you're supporting hypertrophy very effectively. You're eating enough fiber to support your overall health and wellness, uh, but you are not eating so much protein and fiber that it is becoming difficult to get to your daily calorie target. Uh, so I want to wrap up things here with a quick uh, summary of the episode. We all know that having appropriate macro and calorie targets is imperative for weight management, but that is just the beginning. By focusing on how we eat a meal and how we select specific foods, we have an opportunity to strategically manage hunger, satiety, and appetite in order to support our desired body composition goal. So factors like eating speed, energy density, food texture, and palatability are important. Uh, in addition to some other extraneous factors like physical activity levels and psychological perspectives pertaining to food intake. We can strategically leverage all these factors to support successful dieting, whether we are cutting, bulking, or maintaining. Now, before I end this episode, I hope you will afford me once again the opportunity to make a shameless sales pitch for MacroFactor, which is the diet app that Greg and I co-developed along with a very talented team of colleagues. As you consider the wide variety of diet approaches and strategies that you might implement in the new year, rest assured that MacroFactor can facilitate whatever you're planning to do. First and foremost, it's a remarkably fast, efficient, and convenient food logger. It's got a huge verified database of foods, and it's got very easy workflows that you, you can add custom foods, custom recipes, and even share your recipes with friends and family. So whatever your food choice preferences are, MacroFactor can handle it. Uh, MacroFactor has a lot of flexibility, uh, a lot of different uh, uh, coached macro programs that you can choose from, ranging all the way from low-fat diets to ketogenic diets. Uh, you can even branch out, uh, or I should say within the coaching programs, you know, you can choose your, your macro uh, distribution preferences. You can also choose four different protein settings, which 
ties into what we talked about in today's episode of kind of strategically adjusting protein uh, based on what you're trying to achieve so you can navigate uh, different challenges pertaining to hunger and appetite regulation. Uh, so the coach programs offer a great deal of flexibility, but if you want, you can even use collaborative mode or a manual program to provide even more flexibility. So in short, Macro Factor is your diet sidekick. It provides all the guidance, support, and analytics you need without infringing on your ability to make your own decisions and chart your own course toward your fitness goals. So to learn more, check out macrofactorapp.com or you can just look for it in the app stores. All right, as always, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. We will be back soon with another. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.